0: Great news guys. We have partnered with the good folks over at moonwalker.com and moonwalker is one of our favorite CBD companies that offer a wide variety of products. Those include Delta 8, CBD, HHC, CBN, CBG, and many, many more. Moonwalker has become the industry leader in Delta 8 and CBD products, pushing the boundaries of what is truly possible with hemp. By combining award-winning terpenes and natural flavors in unique custom blends they explore new dimensions of taste balance and euphoria for all cannabinoids moonwalker offers tincture gummies vape cartridges disposal vapes and much much more i personally take the full spectrum cbd at 750 milligrams of cbd and have completely left my anxiety prescription in the cabinet Anyone who listens to our show knows that we are teachers during the day and would not endorse something that would put us or our listeners in jeopardy when it comes to testing. If you are interested in supporting us and this great company, head over to moonwalker.com and use affiliate code Brews. That is M-O-O-N-W-L-K-R.com and the affiliate code is M-B-R-E-W-S. Have any questions or concerns about the legality of CBD Delta 8 or any of Moonwalker's other products? Please visit moonwalker.com backslash pages backslash legal. Enjoy the ride.
1: Beginning in 1984, a man named Kim Webster was using a BBC microcomputer to do his work. Suddenly, he started receiving messages, not only from the past, but soon from the future. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of The Doddleston Messages.
0: Mrs. Willia Made me tea Made love to me On the tally To the BBC To the BBC Yeah, yeah, yeah BBC One BBC Two BBC Three BBC
1: Four BBC Five BBC Six
0: BBC Seven BBC Heaven This is To a deep, dark, hot-as-ass-crack, sweaty balls basement.
1: (laughs) It is. It's fucking miserable.
0: All right, so my son had surgery this morning, and we got there at the ass crack of dawn, of course, and the only thing in the waiting room was the weather channel, and so I saw the same thing about 100 times. But what did catch my eye was today in Oklahoma City, it is June 24th, that I think the air temperature was going to be like 102. The same... Bat time same bat channel Tomorrow the high seventy eight. What the hell? Yeah, brother. Could you imagine there
1: must be a storm coming in?
0: They said that it's some kind of odd like not really it would if it was the winter time it would be like an Arctic plunge, but basically there's a big push of cold air coming down, cooling everything off. But more importantly, the way they were talking this morning. Was it's lowering the dew points, and that's why it feels so damn miserable. Gotcha. Is the dew points are so high, and then you add on that humidity. Now, to put it in perspective, what's even worse is this morning, the same time that I was watching the uh, Weather Channel, they flashed to Tampa Bay, Florida, and at seven o two a.m. in Tampa Bay, Florida, it was. I want to say the air temperature was eighty nine, it felt like ninety-six. Jesus. I would just like open the door and then close the door and be like, no, nah, I'm not I'm not going out there today. No, fr- <laughs> nope. I got the it's Friday nice blues. I drove by yesterday, this poor group were doing a roof at one o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, most yeah, roofers yeah. don't do that anyway. They take them they work till about ten and come back about four. Yeah. But anyway. So yes, 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 that is. The crazy, crazy. We
1: definitely got a rabbit hole case today.
0: Yeah. And we are barely just scratching the surface on this one. So, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. When, whatever we do on this, you're going to have, if you're interested, you're going to have to do your own research because there's way, way more to it than we'll be able to cover.
0: The other thing is I'm going to recommend a website, which has a ton of stuff on it. So there, if you, Want it all condensed? This website has it listed for you at the end of one of the articles they they did on this. But before we get started, we had a new patron today. Her name is Amy Urban. She joined at the three dollar tier. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So uh, without further ado, I
1: mean, we'll take it. You know, $3 is $3. If we can get a couple hundred thousand people to do that.
0: We can stop working. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're talking about the Doddleston message this evening. So gather round, children, gather round. We begin this crazy story with a man named Ken Webster. He was born in 1955 in the Lake District of Northwest England. And it's going to be hard for me not to try and talk like an Englishman when I quote some of this stuff. So I'm oh, just going go, I'm going do. to apologize it's just going to happen. He gra- back He graduated from the University of Aberystwyth and I'm pretty sure I nailed that one in 1976. In 1984, Ken found himself living in the village of Dordleston in Cheshire County teaching economics at Hawarden High School. Howarden is a central and integral part of Margaret Thatcher's computer literacy project in 84. The project was tasked with pushing the UK as a leader in the new computing age, along with the BBC.
1: To the BBC! To the BBC! Okay, sorry. Sorry.
0: Okay. <laughs> I knew I was just waiting on it. All right, so along with the BBC, the government had brought Acorn Computers into the project to create, basically, they called it a microcomputer, personal computer, but it's really just a word processor. But they name it the BBC Micro. The Micro would be a home computer that had its own television program to help accompany the new users into home computing. So not only if you bought one, you could watch the actual BBC channel and they would show you how to use it. Soon, almost every school in the UK would have a BBC micro or a classroom set of micros within the school walls. So with Hardin being the, quote, pilot school, there were enough micros to allow teachers to check these out and get better acquainted so that they could in turn tell their students how they worked and how to use them. So, Dattleston is located roughly about 164 miles northwest of London, and Ken was residing in what was called, and still is, the Meadow Cottage, and it was an older brick cottage in when he bought it in dire need of restoration. And as the winter of 1984 approached, what had been a construction site began to take shape into a home that Ken could call his own. Ken was living with his girlfriend, Debbie Oaks, at the time, and the couple were looking forward to finally having a home free of the hustle and bustle of a remodel. They were enjoying the company of their friend, Nicola Bagley. Now, Nicola is very um, eclectic, I I should say, Uh, a very transient being, if you would. He had become disillusioned with the teaching profession And he had just returned. Nah, no shit, especially. I mean, hell, he he got disillusioned in 84 when they wasn't making shit. (laughs) And you could really teach. But he had just returned from Africa and basically was just crashing until he figured out what the hell he wanted to do. So Ken lets him basically take over a spare room that also doubled as Ken's little music room. And downstairs, so upstairs in this little cottage, you've got the music room where Nicola's crashing. Then across, you've got a little hallway. You've got the main bedroom where Ken and Debbie are at. And then downstairs, there was a larger living room that took up the very front of the cottage. And then behind that, there was a kitchen and a bathroom that extended towards the rear of the cottage. So Ken decided to check out one of these BBC micros so that Nick, could work on some, what Nick was telling him, some of his comedy sketches. So I guess he was going to try his hand at stand-up. So to do this, the BBC Micro had a program called Edward, E-D-W-O-R-D. He would set the BBC Micro up in the kitchen so that anyone in the cottage could use it. Now, the way it was explained, I found a YouTube video of a guy that actually, I think, has his own channel about computing and he actually found one of the old BBC Micros but he shows the chip and it looks like that you took the back of the monitor off because it was all housed as one unit and you could plug and chug little different chips and so he had this little thing about an inch inch and a half long and you could just plug that in and it was labeled Edward and it looked like you could like take Edward out and you could plug in another program and then you could take that out and It was like the plug-and-play we have today, but back then. So anyway, all was great for the three friends. That was until late August when what has been described as poltergeist activity began to show itself. Small six-toed footprints appeared on the wall. Thinking that Nick or Debbie was messing with Ken, Ken decided to paint over the footprints only to find them in the same spot the next day. Furniture and household items were being moved around. One morning, Ken finds cat food tins stacked in a pyramid as high as four feet.
1: That's just the cat, man. He's just trying to tell you he's hungry.
0: He's playing that cup stacking game.
1: Yeah, he's just like, hey, man, you know, maybe give me one of these.
0: Mm, I'm a growing boy. man. I could use two. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see anything
1: strange going on.
0: On another occasion, Ken returns home to find all the furniture piled in a corner. Other household objects being moved while Ken and Debbie or Nick would have their backs turned. Indecipherable message began appearing on the floors and the walls in chalk. They were hearing tapping sounds. They were having their hair pulled. Classic poltergeist stuff. Ken notices that there is an area of exposed brick in the kitchen that seems to be the focus of the activity. So one evening in December of 1984, Ken, Debbie, and Nick would head out to visit their friend, David Lovell at his new home. And in the hustle and bustle of getting their items together, the BBC micro was left on with the boot screen up Upon returning home. They were surprised that the computer was left on. What was even more surprising was when Ken wanted to look at some of Nick's writings He found a file named KDN. Assessing the file, Ken finds the following message. Ken, Debbie, Nick. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Safe are the bodies of the silent world. Turn, pretty flower, turn towards the sun, for you shall grow and sow. But the flower reaches too high and withers in the burning light. Get out your bricks, Pussycat, pussycat, went to London to seek fame and fortune. <laughs> Faith must not be lost, for this shall be your redeemer. <laughs> I knew you were going to crack on the pussycat, pussycat. It
1: was just how you said it, man. I like, pussycat, pussycat. <laughs> it's,
0: my, it's my best Meredith Burgess. Pussycat. So, upon asking young Nick if he was doing this to mess with him, Nick explains that no, that wasn't me, boss. And Debbie said that she had not used the BBC Micro, and they collectively story. I just always blame them damn women folk.
1: On them women folk, they just they just messing with people.
0: That's right. So the trio decides to brush it off and think. That maybe it was a mutual friend that had come over to use the recording studio upstairs where Nick was crossing. Now, John would come around, and this is who they thought was the culprit at first, and they they didn't, I couldn't find his last name, but John would come around every so often and record some guitar tracks in the makeshift upstairs studio. He was looking to start a band. Ken, however, had this uneasy feeling that this may not be a practical joke. So he takes the BBC Micro back to school with him on Monday morning, and then he doesn't take another one home until February of 1985. Now, keep in mind that files were saved on this BBC Micro to the ginormous five-and-a-quarter-inch floppy disk. <laughs> and there was no networking, no modem, and they definitely wasn't knowing that there internet going on. Now, as for the poltergeist activity in the meadow cottage, there were still the same things going on. Nothing too deviant, but it was still annoying. Once again, on a Sunday, they're tired of being at home. They're getting spring fever. It's February, and they decide to go on a Sunday drive. And once again, they leave the BBC Micro on. Upon returning, they notice a new file was saved to the disk. This time, the name was R-E-A-T-E, REATE. Now, to create a new file from the home screen in Edward, all you had to do was press C for the word create. And it appeared that whoever did this did not realize that you did not have to type the whole word create and by hitting C and then the rest of the word, they created the file "reate." What was even more puzzling was the message that they found in the re file was void of any punctuation and was what appeared to be written in 16th century English. Now, depending on who you ask or what you read, the 16th century English was either quite accurate for its time or it was not very accurate at all. Now, this message reads, and I'm going to do my best because it's written in Old English style. So it says, quote, I write on behalf the of man... What strange words thou speak, although I must confess that I hath also been ill-schooled, sometimes, methinks, alterations are somewhat bareful For they break main, a asleeps in mine bed. Thou art godly man, who hath fanciful women who dwell in mine home. I hath not want to affray, for only sith mine half-witted antic has ripped a twan. Mine bound hath I been ready a night. I hath seen the main alterations. Lastly, charge house and thou home. Tis a fitting place with lots which devil maketh and costly things that only mine friend Edmund Gray can afford. Or the king himself, t'was a great crime to hath bribed mine house. Signed, L.W. So, Ken decides that he's going to take this message to one of his fellow teachers. Mr. Peter Trendle, and he was the English department's head at the Hawarden School. Now, Peter pointed out that the tone was threatening in a 16th century style, and upon revealing this to Debbie and Nick and Ken, the trio decided that if this was one of their friends pranking them, it was time for the game to end. Ken now determined to try and catch the hoaxes, borrows yet another computer, checking the disk for any preloaded material, checking the cottage to make sure it's secure, and leaving the computer in the kitchen as before. This time, another message appeared in the same quirky Mott Tudor style. In a matter-of-fact way, over a coffee, another one of Ken's friends, John Cummings, who lived in Daldleston, who was a solicitor in London suggested that Ken actually reply to the message. So Ken decides, you know what? Hell, I ain't got nothing to lose. Let's do it. So he replies to L.W. And his reply is, quote, In the reign of Queen Elizabeth II, dear L.W., thank you for your message. We are sorry for disturbing you. What would you like us to do? Did you live in a house on this land in about 1620? Do you want us to tell you more about our time? Why write a poem? Who is Edmund Gray? Is he related to the Egerton family? Do you have a family? Is the king James or Charles Stewart? What is the charge house? Was this village called Doddleston in your life? And how many families lived here? Thank you very much for your messages. Thank you for not making us afraid. Signed, Ken, Debbie, and John.
1: It's kind of crazy that they would just, you know, uh, embrace this in a way, you know what I'm trying to say? Like I would just dismiss it.
0: Yeah, They'd I would have like, just turned it off and taken the damn computer um, back.
1: Yeah. Like but no, they didn't do that. They they uh they embraced it, which is kind of nice in a way. You know what I'm trying to say?
0: Oh yeah I do because they're you know, trying I'm not
1: making sense, but I'm just saying like I no, would have just been like, oh fuck off.
0: Yeah, they're trying <laughs> to bridge the gap. They're they're wait, how do you say it? Hesitantly inquisitive
1: That that's a good way to put it.
0: They want to know they still in the back of their mind think that somebody's messing with them so that might be their underlying theme meaning for trying to do this is to try to catch whoever's doing it make them slip up or something like that anyway so Ken, Debbie and John head to the Red Line pub just down the street thinking if they are crazy and more importantly if they would receive a reply so a day passes and lo and behold a reply is sent back and this time it says Quote, "'Twas an honest farm of oak and stone. It is helpful that you should tell me about thy time. doust thou hath horse? Edmund Grey, brother of John Grey, lives at Kinnerton Hall. Thy king, of course, is Henry the Eighth, who is six and forty. I ne woot of King James. Mine charge house is a place of lore and schooling. Signed again, L.W., but this time he puts the date, twenty eighth March, anno, fifteen twenty one. Now, the naysayers will say. They will say nay. And they will also say that if they were communicating with someone from 1521, Henry VIII would have only been 30 years old and not 46. So, therefore, this is all a hoax. Case closed. See you all next week. Deuces. So, Ken's like, no, nah, I don't think so, man. I, there's something else going on here. So Ken did not want to call out his new, what he described as a pen pal, and he wanted to see if he could catch the culprit. I think he still thinks that this somebody's pulling his leg.
1: I mean, how could you not, though? I mean, really?
0: Yeah, because nobody in their right mind going to be like, man, I'm talking to this guy from 1521. He talks all crazy and stuff. <laughs> he talks funny. <laughs> he talks a lot. So, Ken wonders if this was a weird program that had somehow found its way onto the BBC micro. And the strange and modern grammar of question marks and brackets also modeled the issue. And Ken would continue to check out a BBC micro, not for Nick anymore, but to continue the conversation with whomever he was corresponding with. So the next message reads, "Mine goodly friend, I must needs say, how cometh this, that there are many things for which I hath no reckoning? Methinks it that if thou cannot tell thee for what art is mine home, then I can no more help y'all. Then if mine wits had gone, I hath no kinfolk to find mine was wretched with the pestilence, and the Lord distake her soul and her unborn son in 1517. And the um, pestilence that he speaks of is the Black Plague. Mein farm... I'm um, shit. Now I'm German. Mein farm? <laughs> 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 All right. <laughs> mein farm tis humble, but it hath a pretty parcel of land. It hath red stone footings and clean rushes on men beaten floor. This season I hath much to do, I hath to sow mine barley for mine ale, Tis this that is mine craft, And for which I am best at a fancy. Also I hath to go to Nantowich, To mine coweth friend Richard Wisehole, Who his farm be so great As to turn four-year rotation of fallow. I do so envy him, He hath much there, But not that delts me more than his cheese. It cannot be equalled by any other for pleasantness of taste and wholesomeness of digestion, I shall call eight Nantwich market. tis not so great as Sester Market, but thy cries but tis of some disreport. I shall need to go to Castor this season to get mine sows mine goodly friend Thomas Aldersay. A tailor by craft makes them sometimes, I el make sows, but not of mine swine. Are ready. tis far too costly unless i need kill one do you knoweth the country of cester the water gate is a place that bringeth many a traders tis a shame the port doth shrink i can recall great ships now they grow small by each tide but cester port is still greater than that of liverpool i am off to the west of cester cow lane tis not so tiresome there then by cross when mine fowl or swine doth not trip up mine poor body, I hear tell that thou art a teacher at Hardwon. Doth thou meaneth how then? Doth thou still earn thy greatly sum of twenty pounds per year? I record mine unfavorable Dean Henry Mann, who is likened to a fish. If any boy shall appear naturally averse to learning, aft fair trial he shall be expelled elsewhere lest like a drone he should devour the bee's honey. Nay, I cannot make merry on a holy day, for fair mine life mine friend was once a-floating on a holy day, and it hath his ears pinned to thy wood block. Methinks, when thou saith doddleston, ye meant Duddleston. Mine queen is, of course, Catherine Parr. This time he signs it, Lucas. So... To unpack what we've kind of dealt with or unraveled here for just a second is what made this evidence more fascinating was that through Peter Trendle's assessment of the messages, which pinpointed the tone, grammar, and terminology fit with 16th century Cheshire, considering that due to the lack of travel options many centuries ago, dialect and language back then would have differed quite dramatically between different counties in the United Kingdom. Peter even tried to send messages separate from the rest of the group and then delete them to ensure that neither of them were the perpetrators of the experience. So Ken was grateful at Lucas' forthcoming information because the more names Lucas provided, the more fact-checking Ken could do. Redstone could be found under Ken's kitchen, Peter Trender was able to research the linguistics and was able to tie the sentence construction and the distinct combination of words with the use of Latin and could all be tied back to the Cheshire area in the mid-16th century. Parts of the inconsistencies with the time frames seemed to remedy themselves as Lucas would divulge that he was living during Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine Parr. This puts the time period between 1543 and 1547. Now, the funny thing about this is, if you think this is weird, buckle up, Buttercup, because it's about to get a whole lot weirder.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no doubt. Like, you know, receiving messages from the past is one thing, but when you start receiving messages from the future, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother,
0: uh, I don't know. It's like you were on a... I guess it's like the old party line. You pick up and you hear somebody down the road, and then all of a sudden you hear somebody a couple of towns over.
1: Yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm definitely not old enough for those party lines, but I I know about them.
0: I barely remember them. I, the only thing I remember about the phones was that when I was a kid, you could call your own phone and it would ring.
1: Yes, I used to do that all the time. I did too. Talk with my mom. I did too.
0: <laughs> I cannot tell you the amount of ass whippings I got because of that. It was worth it though.
1: Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Pranking your own parents is fucking great.
0: It was awesome. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system and I despise taking vitamins. So I've been on it for about five weeks and. It's pretty good. I, it doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie. It has a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to. You know, it's it, it's very good. It's 75 high quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. It helps start your day off right. And it's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings. And right after I have my coffee and then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy free or gluten free It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day and it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself, and you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes, and Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him $100 a day, so he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own it is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais and for every purchase we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in needs including No Kid Hungry here in the US and in 2020 Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right, so Ken responds by telling Lucas that he is from the year 1985. Lucas says he's communicating with them on a Leem's Boist, which translate to a box of light. He says, you said your time is 1985. I thought you were also from 2109 like your friend who brought the box of light. Pray. Whoever the person is who brought him the leams, Lucas says that this person's name is one and that he is colored green and a time traveler. Now, the thing is, could the green color that he is referring to be the greenish hue that is coming from the screen of the BBC micro? So Ken leaves a message on the computer saying, quote, calling 2109. 2109's first message is, quote, Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can give you only two choices. One, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding but cause what should not be to happen, or two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetime change the face of history we 2109 must not affect your thoughts directly but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny all we can say is that we are all part of the same god whatever he it is
1: that makes everything a little more
0: strange don't it oh yeah and it just a uh, you know it just clarifies so much i mean I'm, <laughs> i mean i see it clearly now I can like, see clearly wow. now the rain. Yeah, I was
1: confused is before, but
0: now I'm I totally befuddled. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to make the water a little less cloudy, what we now have is a man named Lucas from the 1540s communicating with Ken in 1985. Lucas is also communicating with someone who refers to themselves as 2109. So, the inference is they are from the year 2109. And now we have Ken communicating with 2109. Now, one article read that 2109 began communicating due to the fact that Lucas had been arrested and is being held by the local sheriff, Sir Thomas Fausthurst, due to his communication with the Lames Boist, as Lucas called it. The friend also reveals that Lucas is a pseudonym. Lucas is then released and held under house arrest, resuming the communication and confessing how scared he is of the fate that could await him. He also reveals that the Leem's Boist was brought to his house by someone called One, like we said earlier, from the year 2109. So this is where they get the years in the future. Lucas had been under the impression that Ken was also from 2109 until Ken reveals that he is actually in 1985. An unnamed contact from 2109 then starts leaving dark messages on the BBC micro, saying that the events they are experiencing have a wider purpose. In the meantime, Ken and his friends try to think of a way to save Lucas. They remember a chance reference by Lucas to Henry Mann, Dean of Chester, to find information in the present that Mann had in 1533 communicated with Elizabeth Barton, the so-called, quote, Maid of Kent. Barton was a Catholic nun who had made prophecies critical of Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn and who was executed as a result in 1534. Ken gives this information to Lucas to use as a bargaining chip with the sheriff in his ordeal. However, it does not work and Lucas goes on trial for witchcraft but is kept alive to keep the light box working. During this period, Thomas Foulhurst begins to use the box to communicate with Ken, and it emerges that events are happening in 1546. So Ken, Debbie, and Peter learn that 2109 seems to be interfering with their communications with Lucas, changing it or censoring it. 2109 are increasingly antagonistic is how Ken would describe it, and they give the impression that this is all an experiment to whoever is 2109. So they send, 2109 sends a new message, and it is, quote, It is better to have no knowledge at all than to have a distorted view of the truth because of your lack of understanding. We, 2109, are not without compassion, but if you continue to disrupt our experiments then it is likely you will find your destiny. We shall, however, allow one more communication with you so that you may ask your profound questions. We shall answer as you wish. If in terms of physics, then it shall be so. But remember that our limits are set by your own abilities, not ours. There is no one after the man you call Lucas. The chance factor will not recur again in a time span that your can can relate to. So basically, the way I read that was, look, if you don't quit messing around, we're not going to let you keep talking to Lucas, and you're going to screw up our experiment, and if you'd screw that up, we're going to cut off communication to Lucas, and there's not going to be anybody else that has the means to communicate with you.
1: 2109 seems very mean. Yeah, I think they woke up
0: on the wrong side of the bed.
1: super mean.
0: They got all pissy. It's all pissy.
1: They did. Like, seriously. Yeah. Excuse me, sir, but if you keep doing this, we're not gonna be able to let you talk to Lucas anymore, okay?
0: In the words of Cartman, scream guys, I'm going home.
1: He's like, Just just FYI. We're not gonna let you talk anymore, okay?
0: That's right, you said some bad, <laughs> bad words. <laughs> so other messages from twenty one oh nine describe the mechanisms of the poltergeist phenomenon. And 2109 tells Ken that by his activities, he's unleashed this and that they are stopping his communication with Lucas until things cool down. The man called One also visits Lucas and tells him something similar. It is at this point that Peter convinces Ken that he should contact the Society for Psychical Research to get their opinion on the matter. So he does and John Bucknall and Dave Welsh arrive from the Society of Psychical Research and after a couple of days of no contact on the BBC Micro, the pair devise a test of validity. So you got Bucknall and Welsh. They write 10 questions on the BBC Micro to 2109 unbeknownst to Ken, Debbie and Peter. And, yeah, Nick's gone. I don't know where Nick's at, but he's gone like a fart in a dust storm. Like
1: He literally, like, disappeared off the face of the planet from my research. is he's just
0: gone, gone, gone. He might have got a hold of some bad shrooms, man. Maybe. You never know. Yeah. It was 85. <laughs> and not to blame Nick for disappearing, because at this point, I'd have been like, fuck this. I'm out of here. I was just trying to find a place to sleep.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I mm mm I'm not trying to contact the future. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So back to the test, Bucknall and Welsh would race the 10 questions after posing them. And if a reply came back, then Ken should contact them immediately. Several days would actually pass with no correspondence. Then a response is sent and it is addressed to David and John, not to Ken, Debbie and Peter quote, David and John, David, you interfere with communication. Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear from here. We suggest you try someone else to sit with, Debbie. Yes, we are what you would call a Tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given choice or if you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that this is not proved. We will give you a plotting of a star next time. We move at a speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed of a neat energy that you will not have heard of. Signed, 2109. So upon hearing of this response, Dave Welsh stated, quote, 2109 had not answered the question, but it seemed they had picked up all the questions left for them in the same order, end quote. Ken, Debbie, and Peter felt as if they now had concrete proof that they were not the hoaxers. They had been denied access to the questions, and given that 2109 seemed to know what the questions were, they would be exonerated. Despite this, the Society for Psychical Research stopped communicating with the Cottage's inhabitants, and speculated that it was possible that sensitive microphones could have been carefully placed to pick up the sounds of typing. This could be used to deduce what questions were being typed on the BBC micro. All right, I got to stop here because that's utter horseshit.
1: (laughs) What do you mean? In 1985,
0: they're trying to say that Ken, Debbie, and Peter, or Ken, Debbie, and John, or whoever the hell else is in that house at this point, set up these sensitive-ass microphones to hear the keystrokes, not see them, just hear them. Yeah. And by hearing the keystrokes, they could We're deduce.
1: To, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're able to, oh, okay, he hit K. Yeah. I, I can hear him hit K.
0: Are you yeah. sure he hit K? I thought that was a J.
1: No. That's impo- It's pretty much impossible.
0: Yes. And, and here's another thing. Just on the sheer surface of this whole story, The guy's teaching fucking economics in 1984 in rural UK. Do you think he's that fucking smart?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. You got to suspend your uh, ability for disbelief here. You got to believe, man. They definitely were able to tell by keystroke. No,
0: fuck that shit. I believe their story. I believe this shit's true. I don't believe in this mockery that these. Satanists are putting forth with its devil tail.
1: Okay, it's more likely that this that they are contacting the the past and the future. It's more likely that that is true than they're able to decipher keystrokes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes.
1: It's just not going to happen.
0: <laughs> All right, so moving along, communication is reestablished with Lucas. No, 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 no. Now I've jumped all out of sort. I... I... I
1: Get it pol- together, man. Come on. I
0: apologize.
1: Pull it together.
0: Okay, so after they tried to say that they've got these sensitive microphones and they're reading tea leaves and they know exactly what keys are pushed, they went on to suggest that perhaps someone using the, quote, earth wire of the electricity supply to the computer to send and receive data through the micro. John would leave the society shortly after this suggestion and dave welsh simply disappeared without a trace and an official report was strangely never filed so now we get back to the what i was put out of order communication is reestablished with lucas but with further intervention and inexplicable comments from 2109, Ken and Lucas begin to suspect that 2109 is changing their messages, and they develop a system where Lucas starts communicating with paper and charcoal left out for him in 1985. Now, this area of the story is confusing as shit to me. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to go back and, and unpack it a little bit. So what they've said is that they think 2109 is changing messages on their end before the recipient can see it. So to combat this, Ken leaves out paper and charcoal in 1985, and Lucas is somehow able to use it and see it, and also hear Ken from 1540-whatever. Though, this means that Lucas needs to actually, and does, reveal his God-given name, Thomas Harden or Hoardin, a graduate of Rasnos who had been dean of the chapel there, but was expelled in 1538 for refusing to expunge the name of the Pope from a book in the chapel, as was required by law after the break with Rome. Upon learning this, 2109 becomes extremely irritated that Ken has learned Lucas's real name and demands that he stop disrupting their experiments. So this is where I'm confused. Not only are you communicating. I'm just through,
1: now confused. Yeah,
0: I was good. I was good up until now. So, not only are you saying that you're communicating with someone in 1533, or 15 mid 16th century, and someone from the future, but you are now saying that if you leave out paper and charcoal in 1985, somehow the guy in 1530s. Can pick it up and write you a message. That's where I start to be like, mm, there might be something fishy here."
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm just impressed that it took you this
0: long. I'm, all, I was all in, dude. Like when I was researching this, I was, I was all in, and then I started reading this little part, and I'm like, mm, "There's a crack in the armor." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. Just a tad. Just a little bit. So eventually the Grosvenor family, Lucas's landlords, demand that he leave this house, the cottage. Lucas leaves a final message wishing Ken and his friends well and stating that he will go to Bristol to buy a horse, then see if he is welcome again at Brasnos. He says that he will write a book about the events in hopes that someday they might meet so he can read Ken's book and Ken Lucas's. So I guess Ken divulged that he was about to write a book as well. So, um, okay, anyway, I'll hold my thoughts till later. Lucas is then never heard from again. Although Ken finds a reference to him or at least someone with his name becoming a vicar at Little Barrington in Gloucestershire. From 1551 to 1554, the tale is rounded off with some final ever cryptic communications from 2109, one of which is after Peter returns from Oxford, where he does in fact find Thomas Harden, a founding fellow, 2109 poses this in a message, quote, you may phone Gary Rowe at the number below and invite him to talk with you. When he comes, show him this and ask him what he makes of it. Peter must do the telephoning. Tell him you got this telephone number from a UFO enthusiast, signed 2109. So they do just that. And this guy, Gary Rowe, he was, in fact, a UFO investigator who came to the cottage with an array of investigative equipment. Ken said that Gary was a well-educated man, obsessed with his ideas. With Gary at the cottage, 2109 begins communicating directly with him and asks Ken to print off messages Without reading them. Okay, so think back to 1985. All of those of you that had the old computer printers that sounded like a damn machine gun going off. And you had the little holes on the side of the paper and it kind of rotated all. That thing printed like a line at a time. If you had to wait for a whole sheet, you're going to read it just out of boredom. But anyway, but he was supposed to print them out, not read them. Put them in an envelope, seal it, and give them to Gary. So after a lot of back and forth, Gary would end up writing a message to 2109 stating, Greetings, I am instructed to apologize, but in any event, I would have done so of my own volition. There will be a letter, hopefully this weekend. I am also instructed to apologize to Ken and Debbie. I must try and answer your last letter. It would appear that you are more important than I had realized in the scheme of things. Signed, Gary. So, just a few days later, Gary would become almost evasive about their discussions, and according to Ken, he seemingly disappeared into the night. Ken went on to say how this was strange and frustrating, since this did little to nothing to prove the validity of what was and had been transpiring on the BBC Micro. 2109 had seemingly used Ken to communicate with Gary about the future, and now Gary's only concern was to keep those details to himself. So the final messages that came through from Lucas, and I don't refer to him as Thomas after they found out his real name was Thomas just because that's too confusing, that's too many names. So we're just going to stick with Lucas. So the final message that comes from Lucas provided detail and perhaps the most intriguing thing. How the leams had appeared to him shining apparently as a green light from the walls of his chimney. As translated into more modern English, Peter writes, quote, I never feared for my soul so much in my life, but so afraid was I that I couldn't move away from this strange messenger. He said, Fear not, good Thomas, you are starred to be a great man if you do not have fear, but keep your faith strong. Then after other words, which I do confess were not like devil talk, he was going to leave the limbs, which appeared to be the same as your computer. Lucas went on to explain that by speaking toward the limbs, words would appear automatically on the limbs. This would lend you to believe that there was no keyboard, and I would love to see how they would explain that to somebody in the 1530s. But basically, all he had to do was speak it, and it would appear. And it would save it automatically. So one of the themes which transpires most strongly from Ken's book the vertical plane, is the instability of texts. Now, this is a little wordy, but it kind of explains what's going on. Ken's ghost is a textual ghost, although Lucas seems able to see and hear what is happening in the present for himself. Ken himself never sees Lucas, although his girlfriend, Debbie, sees him in her dreams on several occasions. Instead, Ken primarily interacts with Lucas through various forms of textual communication. Lucas communicates through different identities, directly as Lucas Wayman, then as Thomas Harden, and second-hand through an unnamed friend and through the sheriff, Thomas Fausthurst. He also sets traps for Ken in an attempt to determine whether he is really from the future. One example of such a trap is that he claims to have completed his degree at Jesus College, Oxford, which at the time did not exist. Anyone from the future, Lucas reasons, would surely know there is no such thing as Jesus College and that it is absurd to claim to have studied there. Ken, meanwhile, sees this as a, quote, mistake, which could point to the presence of a hoaxer. So Ken and Lucas take steps to further resolve how their texts are received. Both try to modify their grammar and vocabulary so as to make it easier for the other to understand. Lucas also modifies his handwriting to try to make it clear as possible. Lucas's original correspondence is presented in uppercase with a rendering in modern English below in lowercase. And there's several examples of this on different articles and websites that you find out. I'm not going to try to suffer through that old English again. I'm just going to give you the modern English translation on these next two. Oh, come on, man. Jesus Christ. It's like, God Almighty. It's like trying to read Russian. It's
1: what they tune in for is to hear you mispronounce things.
0: Oh, and boy, howdy, do I ever. (laughs) So the next one the examples they give is Lucas writes quote My pleasant fool, my servant, thinks that you are all in my head. He says I act like a seer, but I know you live now. He also says that my blood is poison and that it is my weak hinged imagination. But I am not mad, I think, and I told him so. I also said it's like fairy gold that he should keep it secret until I write thine book. The result is a patchwork of overlapping unstable stable narratives, which through their structure resist any attempt to derive a true version of the story. Lucas makes this point explicitly in this message, quote, I think we are a history book that has its front and back pages joined together. We are each a side of it. Basically, one's writing the end of the book headed towards the middle and one's writing the beginning of the book headed towards the end. Lucas states at various points that he is writing his own book about these events, a completely alternative narrative to set against Ken's own book, although one that the reader in the 16th century is not privy to. This would mark the last communication with Lucas and the trio at the cottage. 2109 would soon end their communication with the following message. Quote, there is another person to come. They will be the help we need. You will know them when they come. Lucas did eventually write his book and soon died. Shortly after, we placed it in a secure place. It shouldn't take too many years to find it, though he wrote it in Latin with the help of a friend that we met in Oxford. The inscription reads, Me writes this in the hope that mine fellows will one day find this book, that my own lands be not so distant. So, the question is, is there another side to this crazy-ass story that remains untold? Could someone at Oxford find a book written in Latin that explains what's going on?
1: That's your British accent.
0: No, it's not. It's not really. <laughs> I'm trying. Dude, I'm trying real hard not to just break out into, like, Cockney or some bullshit like that. <laughs>
1: You going to talk like Michael Caine all yeah. of a sudden?
0: Yeah, like him and uh Austin Powers when they sit on that on that bed at that 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 thing where he goes, "You mean English, English, Dad? Yes, English, English."
1: <laughs> the only thing that I'm intolerant of is people that do not respect other people's beliefs. <laughs> the Dutch, <laughs> the Dutch.
0: Okay, so closing thoughts, and this is a long myriad list. So buckle up, baby. So the way in which, and again, this tries to explain a lot of shit going on in this, so just bear with me. So the way in which layers of different textual forms impose themselves upon each other, adding to or contradicting each other is not unlike in which the real Lucas might have experienced the textual culture of the 16th century England. The bound, printed, and unannotated book was by no means the prevailing manifestation of textual culture in early modern England. Textual forms, which to modern eyes appear much less, quote, settled than print, interacted both in partnership and intention with the printed book. Commonplace books reproduced text with printed sources while at the same time subverting it to the owner's own needs. Manuscripts. Newsletters coexisted with printed newsbook. Printed almanacs provided space for owners to handwrite their own annotations. While we are used to looking for linear narrative compositions put together by a clear author and generating a fixed meaning, early modern writers, as well as their readers, were willing to cut and paste material from different types of forms of text to create Their own text embedded within other texts or texts that coexisted alongside other texts. That makes perfect sense. (laughs) All right. So I want to clear this up. So, what that's trying to say is basically in the 16th century, you didn't have, you couldn't pick up a book and read it like front to back like we do now. Basically, what people would do is they would, it would almost be like a collection of short stories. And it's almost like, and this is, and it, It's the only thing that I could come up with. It's almost like copying the Bible. You had to copy it from verbal to written, say, Aramaic. And then it had to be copied from Aramaic to Hebrew, and then from Hebrew to whatever. And so that translation across all those languages is lost, and some of the meaning and the nuances are lost. And so I think that's what they're trying to say, is that Lucas was more adept at inferring what was being written in a... Manner in which he was not accustomed to more so than if Ken was in his position. Does that make sense? Nope. Nope. I didn't think so. Okay. Not at all. So let's just not even close. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, given all this bullshit, the ease with which Ken's 16th century counterpart adjusts to the different forms of communication with Ken is perhaps not so far fetched. Lucas's sense of confusion and wonder is reserved for the Leem's voice. Where has it come from, and how does it glow so green? But he adjusts very quickly to communicating with Ken in different ways and becomes adept at darting back and forth between such. As a student at Brasnos College, he would no doubt have been just as adept at negotiating printed and manuscript versions of text he alludes to a relaxed attitude about remixing different forms when ken leaves out a picture of erasmus which subsequently disappears taken by lucas back to his own time so i guess that's my thing i i guess my question is whatever ken leaves out it magically shows up in lucas's cottage
1: yeah that i mean though this whole case doesn't make any sense that is the least likely scenario i mean how could it possibly show up in a 15 something other year cottage
0: the only thing and i'm not saying that this is what happens the only thing that i would i would say you might be on to something was you know, he finds that exposed brick pillar in the back of the kitchen, and he also finds that the redstone underpinnings. I wonder if he's like, all right, look, in some message, because supposedly there's like something crazy, like 180 of these messages back and forth. But what if he's like, and I've not written his book, and he may explain it, not written his book, read his book. Um, What if he's like, all right, I'm going to leave something for you at next to this underpinning, see if it's there. But see, that doesn't make sense because I go back to the old Quantum quantum Leap show where if you mail it in 67 to 1985, it shows up immediately, not vice versa.
1: Well, I mean, in the fact that he's leaving things that are going back in time, but Lucas is not leaving things that are traveling into the future.
0: That was my next point.
1: That's That's very strange as well. I mean, I don't know. It's it's suspect. Let's just put it that way.
0: So Lucas does respond to the picture and says, thank you for the picture. I shall have it put in my book about your time. Now Ken's account is on the surface, a supernatural detective story, which struggles to find the truth. Who is slash was Thomas Harden? Did he really exist? Were his communications real or fake by someone with a good knowledge of the sources? Ken's Character devotes considerable energy during the early days of the haunting, if that is what it was, to researching any modern Cheshire and its surroundings. He is ecstatic when Thomas Foulhurst, the first verifiable character, comes to their attention. He is even more jubilant when Robin Peedle, an assistant librarian in 1980s Brasnos, identifies Thomas Harden in the college records and Harden confirms who he is. Ken's book, what is the name of it? The Vertical Plane, is first printed in 1989, some three years after this story is supposedly concluded. Now, there are a lot of people out there that claim that this was an elaborate money-making scheme to get Ken's name out into the press and make him some fast money. Now, while Ken did find himself the subject of an article in the Daily Mail, it was pushed back to page three, just under an ad for Wellington Boots for Dogs. So, I don't think they were taking him very seriously. So, again, if you weren't, or if you were wanting to make a... A lot of money quick. Get your story out there. Why not make the book as fast as you can and release it as immediately as you can to the article coming out in the Daily Mail instead of waiting three years after the story concludes to release your book. Now, Ken does allow Peter Trindle to explain his own thoughts on the matter in the last section of the book, The Vertical Plane. Peter goes into a great... Detail explaining how he had to dig deep into the past iterations of the Oxford English Dictionary and other references to discover exactly what the words from Lucas were saying. Also, keep in mind, he's not hopping on Google and typing in how to translate this shit. He's actually traveling to Oxford to look at their old dictionaries and their old writings to decipher these messages. He further goes on to explain that this would be nearly impossible to work backwards, therefore, if Ken were hoaxing this whole story. He goes on to explain how in his research and other 15th century documents, such as the Paston letters from East Anglia and the Seeley letters from London, helped date Lucas's text to the mid-16th century. Peter further details a list of words that he could not place, but... Through the power of the Internet now, you can track them down. And guess what? They actually do make sense in the 16th century context. Peter states this to solidify that this could not have been a hoax. And on the 1996 episode of Out of This World, he went on camera to declare it so. In the episode, you can see Peter state, quote, if someone was doing this as a hoax, they would have to have done one hell of a lot of research, and I can honestly say it was not me, but you either believe me or you don't. I knew it was not me. I did not believe that it could be Ken. Of course, always from the start, that was the assumption I started with when he gave me this strange piece of paper over the school dinner table one day and said, do you understand this? And I said, well, let me take it home and have a look at it knowing that I had an old English dictionary. I thought, well, this dictionary will soon prove that this was just a bit of silly nonsense, but of course it didn't, end quote. So like a lot of shows that dealt with the strange and paranormal, the show Out of This World's producers find a English professor that stated that there were a lot of words people in not, in 1546 would not have used or made up. The lady they use is Dr. Laura Ingram from Cambridge, and she stated that Lucas mix up the dusts, the duths, and the dowels suffixes with the wrong subject. She goes on to explain that an educated man such as he claims to have been would not have made these gross errors in speech and text. Ken and Debbie do not do themselves any favors in the eyes of the skeptics in the show when they refuse to show their faces for interviews.
1: Yeah, but I mean, why would you want to show your face? I don't blame him for that.
0: I don't either, and that's what I was about to say. I would I would counter that argument with it had been by the time that show comes out it had been 7 years since Ken's book had come out and he may have finally been able to carry on a professional and personal life without ridicule.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And he's probably like, "Look, I'm just now getting to the point where I can walk around and people not go, there's that fucker that thinks he was talking to somebody in the 1500s."
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean the fact that they put out the book i mean what what are they trying to do like this book is not super popular it didn't make them a lot of money
0: and it's still it not but like you can buy a copy on amazon it's like 18 bucks yeah something like
1: that it's just i mean they didn't do it for fame is what i'm trying to say is
0: well no and you're not going here's my thing he This is a a long play for him, too, if you look at it from a hoaxer standpoint. But I don't see... Like, keep in mind, in the late 90s, people that believed in the shit that we'd do podcasts on were ridiculed. You didn't dare say that you believed in time travel and ghosts and shit like that in the late or mid to late 90s.
1: Yeah, it's definitely becoming more acceptable.
0: It's less taboo. Yeah, and it's not as weird to... to believe in some fringe theories as it is or as it was. So now let's look at the man named Gary Rowe. He supposedly, allegedly, surfaced from time to time on forums and message boards that dealt with the Donaldson messages. Still apparently a believer in this sordid tale. In one of his posts, he states, quote, I had the opportunity to investigate these happenings firsthand. No, I am not some away with fairies, wishful believer. I investigated with professional detachment, not bothered with what I would find, fake or fact. I left no stone unturned, and I used cutting-edge science to get to the truth. In fact, I believed it was the first computer-controlled psychic investigation in the world. I don't care two hoots if nobody believes me. It changed my life forever. It is going to change yours. The book should slash will one day be ISBN recorded under the history section. It is a monumental historical marker in the ribbon of time, end quote.
1: Pretty bold statement.
0: Yeah, that's real bold. Now, in the later years and in just a couple of years ago, Debbie has now been the target of the naysayers and the people that say that it's a hoax. It has been said that nothing would ever appear when she was not at Meadows Cottage and that on more than one occasion, she was the only one in the residence when a message would come across the BBC micro. So if you are interested in this strange tale and you want to take a deeper dive There's a good blog post on it. It's called time-slips.blogspot.com. Reddit has a whole subgroup dedicated to this. Just type in r slash the vertical plane, and it comes up, and you can get your tinfoil hat probably singed in there. (laughs) If you are extremely interested, then I suggest you go to the... Amazon and you get you one of them there vertical plane books that we just discussed for 1849 I think was what I saw the last time I looked but what say you coach
1: I mean I'm, I'm on the fence man I really want to believe but it's just it's very strange it's a very strange case
0: there's a lot doesn't... of things there that, and the lady from Cambridge in that out of time episode. I think you can actually find that episode on YouTube. They interview her and she goes further into the, to why she felt like it was faked. She says that the misspellings, the use of brackets, the use of punctuation also lends itself to a hoax. But on the other hand of that is if you believe the tale that 2109 is manipulating each person's response are they the ones adding the punctuation to make Ken able to read it better?
1: I mean, maybe, but it, I mean this 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 story is just so out there. It's so beyond the scope of imagination that it's it's just hard to buy into it. She but again, also, she I
0: want. I do too, man. She also goes on to point out that twenty one oh nine has a lot of misspellings and that that lends itself to being a hoaxer. I don't necessarily see that like she's kind of trying to throw blame and lay this at the foot of Ken and I don't think it's so much Ken I really don't think it was him I think he may have been hoaxed and maybe I mean, Debbie's how, part of though, it but
1: at this point in time with the technology involved how could he possibly have been hoaxed but it could have been his wife doing the
0: well that's what they're saying. They're saying that Debbie was the culprit and then they're also saying that I read somewhere or I watched something.
1: But I mean at some point if if it was his wife, let's say she's hoaxing him, she's fucking around with this guy, she's not gonna let him write a book. She's not gonna let him go on TV and talk about it and I mean, how far are you gonna take a joke? You know what I'm saying? Like Oh, I agree with you. You're gonna make your husband, who's a college professor, the just basically being ridiculed by the entire fucking planet because of these messages.
0: And what are you gonna get out of it? What's what's her end game?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, at some point, if she was if she was the culprit, she would have come clean and be like, "Hey, man, I'm sorry. I thought it would be funny."
0: And (laughs) you just kept on and on and on. And I didn't want to break your heart. And you really
1: just got a a little out of control. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That'd be grounds for a killing.
1: Yeah. I mean.
0: Yeah. I'm like you. I want to believe, but I just, there's a lot of things in there that if you could give me a decent explanation about how it occurred or why it occurred in that situation, then I might be more inclined. But
1: well, I mean, again, in the fact that he got the age wrong,
0: yeah, of King Henry the Eighth, and he got King it in VIII, a wrong If he was truly from there,
1: he might not know his real age, but he definitely know he's not if he's thirty, he's definitely not forty six, you know. Right. So I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna say, no, this is I hate to say it, but I'm gonna say it's a hoax, man. I really don't wanna say that. I don't I want to believe everything that we cover. I wanna be on the side of fantastical whimsical supernatural things but I don't know surely if 2109 was truly from 2109 they would have been like hey you know watch out for Donald Trump
0: (laughs) possibly but by 2109 they probably have corrected everything so like come on man all right, so we got recommendations, and I'll go first since you was finishing that beverage of yours. I suggest that you go to actual, factual website called contacting2109.com. They have a lot of articles and about a lot of the strain, high strangeness, but the one, I think I bookmarked this summer gun somewhere. somewhere. I think you actually type in, once you get there, I think you just type in Doddleston message and it comes up to their, they have an in-depth article on the subject matter. Uh, Yes, it is contacting2109.com backslash vertical hyphen plane, hyphen ghost, hyphen machine. They have pictures of Deb using the BBC micro. And then they have a picture of Kenneth, and it looks like some writings in chalk on the floor. There are people out there that have tried to contact Ken, and there's a lot of Ken Websters out there. And whoever keeps getting contacted is just like, no, man, I've heard this story, but that ain't me. So, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the doddleston messages what is your recommendation
1: i'm going to recommend a show on hulu called the bear it's about a cook who is uh obsessed with being you know the best and it's it's pretty good I, the fact that i have cooked in several restaurants in my life makes me very interested in it and it's a good show so i would recommend the bear
0: I shall check it out, coach, just on your recommendation. <laughs> I doubt that. Actually, I don't watch TV a whole lot here lately, but anyway. So, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed this lovely, lovely episode. Take care of the people around you. Be nice. If you can't be nice, fuck off. and Be good, be bad. That's right. If you got anything else there, coachy.
1: Oh, God, you know I don't.
0: Uh, Deuces.